The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John chapter 2 is where we're studying. Follow with me. I think it helps when someone's preaching that you follow in your Bible. You can use the Pew Bible to find the second chapter of John. We'll move through this chapter much quicker. It's a shorter chapter for one thing, and it really consists of two episodes. The first is a miracle done by Jesus, pretty familiar to you. I found as I studied this this week that there are more layers to this than meet the eye, I would say. Listen as I read John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God. I'm a very firm supporter of the institution of marriage. But there are times when I do cast a baleful eye upon certain individual weddings. I would draw a line of separation between what always happens at a wedding and a marriage. They're not the same thing. And lest it seem that I am down on weddings, I'm not. I'm just a person who has maybe, let's say, acquired some wisdom from watching a lot of them over the years. The problem with weddings often begins when a bride and a groom and maybe some family members idealize the wedding. You know the expression, the dream wedding. Every young woman is basically sold a bill of goods that she should expect to have, a dream wedding. There are magazines devoted to that entirely. There are stores devoted to the wedding industry. It is quite an industry, as a matter of fact. 
And the young lady could easily be taught to expect that she's going to have in her life this one flawless day. She's marrying the perfect man of her dreams. She will be adorned in a perfect dress with a perfect hairdo. Her family will behave perfectly all day long, including her younger brother. The family will have a perfect meal topped off by the most beautiful wedding cake that ever could be. Now, the problem is that this dream that grows and expands as you prepare involves imperfect people. All the way from the flower delivery person who might come a half an hour later than you expected to the bridesmaid who decides to get appendicitis. Yes, I've been through that one. Uh, The groomsman who faints because he partied too much the night before. The cute little three-year-old flower girl who decides, I'm not walking down that aisle and nobody's going to make me. To Aunt Marge who decides to have a blow-up with her sister who is the mother of the bride 20 minutes before the ceremony begins. Been there and done that. All of it and more. You see... Because we are imperfect, we can't have a perfect day. Brides-to-be, settle in your mind. Some things will go wrong at your wedding, and you'll be much more relaxed and enjoy yourself, I hope. The problem is that we decide we have to perform to sort of fulfill this impossible standard that we've built up. How much better it would be to just say, wait a minute, we're all imperfect sinners It's going to be, in some ways, an imperfect day. Well, John 2 reveals wedding plans that almost ended in a hospitality disaster. But, of course, the Son of God was there, and he worked his first ever miracle on this occasion, turning water to wine. And the wedding feast at Cana was saved that day, and a bridal couple at first were totally unaware of what had happened and what had turned their day into one of fullest and best joy. Well, there's so much we could say about miracles in the Bible. I certainly don't have any time to give you a complete course on miracles today, but as we look at them, particularly in the Old Testament, the emphasis often comes upon the miracle as an act of divine power. In the Greek language, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word dunamis, dynamite, For power would be emphasized in what is happening in a miracle. God intervening, doing something in the natural world, which, of course, he created in the first place, and either greatly speeding up some kind of process or maybe even seeming to reverse something. People say uh, one definition is that a miracle is an interruption of natural laws. I don't really like that too much because it implies the idea that nature has its own laws. Nature has only whatever laws God put there in the first place. And being the one who put the principles and laws by which molecular bonds hold together and everything else, God can certainly change the laws if he desires to. And so in the Old Testament, we've got a a great flood that's a judgment on the earth. We've got uh, the Red Sea opening up. We've got the plagues of Egypt. We've got manna covering the ground. Spectacular things, wonderful things. 
The amazing thing is, you know, you think of the manna miracle that was there day after day after day feeding thousands of people, and after a while they just said, yeah, manna, that stuff, we're sick of it. A miracle that God had been doing to feed them nourishing food, they were sick and tired of it. Well, in John's gospel, the emphasis shifts from not mentioning power so much as using a word, sign. John calls the specific miracles that he singles out in his gospel the signs that Jesus did, and there will be eight of them, including the resurrection of Christ as the last. Now, when you think of a sign, you're thinking of something that's communicating, a billboard at the side of the road, or a speed limit sign or something, giving you some information. Miracles give us information, give us revelation about Christ that help us to believe in him as the Christ of God, which, of course, we've already said, is the purpose of the Gospel of John. Now, this first miracle at Cana at the wedding was a real physical transformation. It was a real miracle. But John wants it to teach you, to use it to teach you about what Christ is doing, a lot about his character, his interest in the lives of people, and his ability to actually transform us and our circumstances as he would, according to his will. 2 Corinthians 5.17 will later say that in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. I think that's being signified in this miracle today. I first want to look at verses 1 to 5 and talk about them in terms of a mundane setting for a miracle, a very mundane setting. Now, weddings then weren't totally different than now. There was one crucial difference, and that was if, you're, if you have all daughters, uh, you would be happy to know this and wish that you would go back to that time because it was the groom whose family gave the wedding feast and fielded all the expenses, not the bride's family. And in that time, of course, the, the wedding feast ended a legal betrothal period. You remember what you know about Mary and Joseph being betrothed, legally bound to each other, yet not living together intimately. But it was a legal agreement. They'd have to divorce to break it. And at the end would come the wedding. And it would be a feast. And in these small towns and villages, you can imagine a big occasion. Neighbors had watched a young woman, a young man grow up to maturity. And and now they were going to have a new life. And everybody would come, probably more or less an open invitation to the whole village. And there were multiple days of feasting, and the groom's family had a great obligation because hospitality was something you were obliged to do in that time. Your reputation rested on being a good host. You would be disgraced if you were not a good host. So, of course, the groom's family wanted their guests denied nothing that would make them comfortable and and that would contribute to the feast. Well, we don't know a lot about this little village of Cana. We think it's basically an archaeological ruin today. It's not even a town there anymore, not far from Nazareth. It was, by the way, the hometown of Nathaniel, who we learned about in chapter 1. Our chapter doesn't tell us that, but John 21, 2 does say that. And so the fact that Jesus had just interacted with Nathaniel could be one reason why they gravitated to the village of Cana. Also, there appears to be some kind of a tie to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Many speculations among the commentators were that 
perhaps the hosts of the feast were relatives, since Mary seems to be in a role here of assuming, you know, maybe some responsibility to help assist with the wedding or something. Perhaps these were relatives. Why exactly she was there, we don't have any better understanding. I've actually seen some writers say, well, this was such a mundane thing. Uh, almost, you'd say, well, not, that, not certainly to the bride or groom you wouldn't call their wedding trivial, but in the grand scheme of human events, this small-town wedding between one forgotten couple whose names we don't even know, hey, this isn't a big event on the world scale of things. Why wouldn't Jesus have inaugurated miracles in some big, important sphere in Jerusalem somewhere where everybody would have seen it and it would have been on a, you know, a major stage like time in the Super Bowl halftime or something like that. And, and people say, well, this is so mundane, so unimportant. But think about it for a minute. Hasn't it been a point of John 1 in telling us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? Or as one translation puts it, the Word, the word became flesh and pitched His tent in our midst, that Jesus came as an ordinary man to ordinary people and into their ordinary lives. And the very point here would seem to be that he comes with his power and his transformation into the most ordinary and mundane circumstances of our very lives. Well, the crisis comes. We're not quite sure why Mary's the one that communicates it, and yet it appears that Joseph is off the scene probably already has died, and Mary is whispering to her oldest son on whom she has relied for her living up till now. She depends on him. She knows he's a reliable person, an extraordinary person, in fact. Son, they've run out of wine. Now, I'm not going into a discourse here on whether or not Christians should drink. You you know, you get the most amazing long discourses in commentaries on whether Christians should have fermented alcohol or not. That's not even a point of this at all. They drank it then. That's all we need to know. It was genuine wine. It was not grape juice. It was usually diluted in some way with water, especially for children. Milk was scarce in those times. Water was often impure. Wine was a common drink. And certainly at a feast, you wanted the best wine you could have. But somebody had miscalculated in bringing in the supply beforehand, or maybe more guests showed up than were expected. One way or the other, they were out. And the feast wasn't over. Big problem. You didn't have a turkey hill within sight, you know, to walk across the street and say, hey, give me some gallons of that iced tea and lemonade and Pepsi and whatever. I'm I'm out of wine. There wasn't any way to supply this easily at all. Now, it comes down to our wondering, what was it Mary expected Jesus to do? And perhaps because we know in our historical vantage point that a miracle was about to happen, we're thinking Mary was coming and saying, Son, do a miracle. Well, she didn't say that. And I'm not even sure she expected that. She had never seen Jesus do a miracle, as far as we know. There are false gospels, fictional, apocryphal gospels that tell tales of the little boy Jesus making clay pigeons by a river bank and making them come to life and fly away. But that's fiction. That's not biblical. Mary 
as far as we know, had never seen Jesus do a miracle. And so I wonder if she was anticipating one or if she wasn't just coming to the most resourceful person she knew and said, son, there's a problem here. Can you help us think of something to do? Well, Jesus also reacts strangely to it. And some think rudely. Only so if you take the word woman to be a rude word to speak to your mother, which wasn't in that time. It was a respectful term. It was like saying lady or ma'am, we might say today. Woman, what do you think I have to do with this? What are you drawing me into? My hour is not yet come. Here he speaks for the first of seven times in this gospel about his hour, his appointment with the destiny of the cross that is the, the polar star of his life, the guide to where he's going. He's seeing his heavenly father as if he's holding a stopwatch in his hand and and timing the arrival of the son at his hour of destiny to die for the sins of the world. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know I'm not going to be distracted from that great goal that God has given me. Even mother, by you who I love, to whom I owe everything, you are not going to distract me. Miracles are not for sale, even for those with insider influence. I really believe Mary was giving a response of right faith and not manipulating her son when she finally says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You know, you can look at that and say, well, she was setting him up. That's how we might say it. I'm not so sure. I think that was a response of faith that she was saying, look, This, my son, is an extraordinary person. If he gives you a command, just do it. Do what he says. And in that sense, she models for us submissive faith before the God of miracles, to wait on him, to look to him and and to do what he will do and in his timing. God's supernatural works are not ours to manipulate or demand or control. Now move from the mundane setting, secondly, to see in verses 6 to 9, God's abundant supply. The passage is very specific. It says six stone jars. I'm not sure if that could mean they were pottery jars or somehow they were actually carved out of rock. It's a little hard to believe that when you consider the size involved, but they were heavy. They had to be heavy. Look, I just a few weeks ago bought five gallons of gasoline for my snowblower. Good move. I had it in time. And, uh, you know, I was struck by being an old person who's not very strong anymore, lifting five gallons of gas. This is heavy. And if it had been a 10-gallon can, I'm pretty sure I could have lifted it, but it would really be heavy. If it was, as this text says, a 20 to 30-gallon container, I'm, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever tried to lift that amount of liquid, but I don't think I would have budged it very far, especially if it was in a stone container. This is a significant amount of fluid weight. Now, the text is also specific in telling us what these water jars were there for. They, all 150, 180 gallons of them, were for ceremonial washings prescribed by Jewish-Israelite law, which ultimately followed the law of God from the Old Testament. 
Ways to purify yourself before a meal, after a meal, various times in your life before different things you would do, you were supposed to wash, symbolically showing your preparation to come into the presence of God. Now, keep in mind then, think about this. We've got a big enough crowd that they could wipe out the wine supply. They all came. They were all Jewish people. They all went through the washings required before the meal. These jars had been in good use Okay? Lots of people had washed their hands there. Maybe their faces, maybe their dusty feet. These were not sterile containers, like the water you would buy in a plastic gallon jug at the supermarket. And you say, well, it's nice and clean. I can trust that this is clean water, hopefully. You don't drink out of jars in which people have washed, right? All right, let's see what's happening then. Jesus says, fill the pots. Draw some out, take a sample, a ladle, or something to the master of the feast. I want you to see the method of this miracle. You know, when Jesus would raise Lazarus later in this gospel, chapter 11, it says he shouted, Lazarus, come out! There are other times when it says he prayed or or laid hands on somebody, or he put mud on somebody's eyes, did various means and mechanisms when he worked miracles, Notice here, it doesn't say that he said a word. He didn't pray. He didn't command. No presto changeo. No let there be light. No abracadabra. He just said, take the water. And it says, obviously, the transformation from water to wine happened mysteriously, silently, by the exertion of the divine will of Christ acting in the power of the Holy Spirit. He changed water from washing vessels into sparkling, excellent vintage wine, the best that could be had. That which took expert winemakers years to make out of the finest grapes and and all their knowledge of how to make wine, there it was in a second because Jesus willed it to be. One form of matter changing into another. And so this anonymous married couple received a lavish wedding gift. You know, we have this sense here that Jesus was probably a last-minute guest. He had just come to the town. He didn't live there. But they said, oh, Jesus, you come too. He brought that couple a bigger gift than anybody else, didn't he? Nobody else, I I wouldn't think, gave them a, a grander gift than 150 or 180 gallons of excellent wine. Not enough, just just enough for the feast, but for days and, and weeks beyond, I'm sure. All right. A mundane place, an abundant supply. Let's ask what it means. The text says what it means. It's a sign. It's a sign for faith. But I want to break that down into several specific applications. First of all, There's an application here that is historical and religious, but it's important. It's not the prime meaning of the text, I don't think, but it is a meaning. By this water turned to wine, we're shown here that the ritualistic practices of Jewish law, which had been turned into an end unto itself in many cases, of course, God's law was good. God's law wasn't bad. But it was bad when it became a mechanical 
process by which you sort of justified yourself and said, I've done the ritual, I've pleased God, now I'll get on with the rest of my life. That kind of ritualistic practice of Jewish law is being replaced by the transforming grace of Christ. It's no accident that these were purification, ceremonial purification jars that were used. God had given his law. It was good. But I'll tell you what. In terms of a system that would save men, that would give men the joy of life and lead them to a transforming relationship with God, you could say about the ceremonial law of Moses, the wine had run out. The system was largely bankrupt due to man's abuse of it, not due to any fault in the law itself. People needed their hearts changed, not just the dust washed off their hands. They needed the mess inside cleaned up, not just some symbolic act as they came to eat food. And the stagnant water of dead religious works had to give way to the rich promise of a change from the inside out. That's at least one application of this text. Another one is for you to think about the effect of the miracle that day. You know, it would be nice if we could say why everybody at that wedding said, wow, this must be the Son of God here. Let's all go follow Jesus. Let's all believe in Him as the Messiah. I don't read that. What I read in verse 11 is it says, as they understood that and left that place, his disciples believed in him. Now, wait a minute. They already believed in him before they got to Cana. If chapter 1 is correct, they already had said, you are the Christ of God, you are the Son of God. If they hadn't had some faith in him, they wouldn't be following him. They wouldn't have gone there to Cana with him. They were disciples when they came, and they were disciples when they left. And I'm not necessarily seeing that the number of them had greatly increased because he did a miracle. Now, what does all that mean? That seems to me to mean that we should not overestimate the importance of miracles as inducements to faith. For the most part in the Scripture, miracles don't save people, not not the outward miracles of material things, at least, like this one. A wonder certainly caused you to say, wow, He calmed the sea, he healed a girl, he made a blind man see, and so on. A deaf man here, that's great. And many people would follow him for a little while and say, oh, he must be important, and then they would fall away. The miracles by themselves didn't save people. It seems that what we do have here is the idea that a miracle does lend reinforcement and confidence to faith that has already begun. It builds faith in those where the Holy Spirit has already awakened people. But don't think of miracles and signs and wonders as that which God is going to use to necessarily strike people where they are and say, boom, you are now a believer. It doesn't seem like it worked that way. Miracles reinforce, but they don't necessarily initiate. Thirdly, I would have you see how much The working of miracles, even in an ordinary setting like this, is part and parcel of what Jesus was. He was the Son of God. He was endowed with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
he could no more not work miracles than he could stop walking or breathing. And why do I say this? Because there are those today, and of course throughout the entire 20th century, as Protestantism saw its great decline from the so-called fundamentalist modernist controversy, liberal Christianity came in and said, look, we could have a great Jesus if you folks would just give up on all this supernatural stuff. What we want is Jesus, who's really the early version of Gandhi, the man of peace, the man who forgives, the man who who works justice, the man who teaches memorable lessons and parables. Let's just take away the, the term that comes along, let's demythologize. That's an ugly word in the use of New Testament scholars of the 20th century. Let's demythologize the New Testament. In other words, anything that looks like it's supernatural, get rid of it. And then we'll have a Jesus that's kind of like us, but much better. Well, the liberal churches that bought into that agenda, some of them in Lancaster County today have... 30 elderly people in sanctuaries that were built for 500 and their buildings are ready to go up for sale because they have a gospel that didn't transform anyone when they took the supernatural out of Jesus. You cannot have Jesus Christ without having a supernatural Savior. You can't have the gospels the way Thomas Jefferson did it with a pair of scissors going through and cutting out all the parts. Jesus calms the sea, cut that out. We know that didn't happen. Multiplies of bread, cut that out. We know that didn't happen. Thomas Jefferson had a Swiss cheese Bible that was worth nothing as he tried to demythologize Jesus and take away the supernatural. You cannot do it. It's not as though you see the truth of the Bible is like a smorgasbord. You go to one of these great Lancaster County smorgasbords and pick out, you know, four kinds of meat, 23 vegetables, all these other things. And so here I am going through the smorgasbord. Broccoli, no. Spinach, no. You know me, what I'm going to leave behind. You can't do that. The miraculous power of Christ is part of the warp and the woof of the fabric of his character and the manifestation of God become flesh. Now, in conclusion, this. We come to a place, I think, where this needs to be personalized, and people say, well, all right, good. Jesus did a miracle, a real miracle, changing something dramatically and powerfully in a mundane situation. I'm a mundane person. I'm an everyday lowly person, and I have a need in my life. My husband's got type 3 cancer. I've got a horrible relationship with my sister that's been that way for 20 years or, or whatever. I've got a, a daughter who's a drug addict, who's a rebel, who won't turn to God. Can I come to Jesus with my mundane situation and say, Jesus, I need a miracle. Will you please do one right here? Oh, and if you will, I'll believe you always and I'll be yours to command. Well, it would seem like that should be possible in one sense because he does have the power, doesn't he? He does have the power. So you would say, well, why wouldn't he will that then if he would do something rather trivial like giving a married couple wine for their feast? Goodness, removing cancer is more important than that. How about my miracle, Lord? And some Christians pray and pray. And say, when's it coming? 
I remember almost exactly 13 years ago when Dr. James Boyce in Philadelphia was telling his congregation six or eight weeks before he died about the progress of his cancer the last time he appeared in the pulpit. And he said, he said to them, should you be praying for a miracle? He said, well, of course, God's a miracle-working God, and he can do miracles. No denying that. But Dr. Boyce, who was a fine theologian, said, but you know, it also strikes me that God could have prevented the cancer in the first place if that was his will. So I'm not sure that a miracle for the hour is his order of the day. Can he do it? Yes. Does he ever do it? Yes. Illnesses sometimes reverse themselves in ways that medical science cannot tell you what's going on there. God does some marvels. God brings about sudden, abrupt events sometimes in his providence in our lives. We have no explanation. Can he do it? Absolutely yes. He's free to do wondrous things. He's powerful enough to do it. Should we therefore expect it? Or would we be better to be like Mary and know that no matter how close we are to him or how much of a relationship we have, that we do not come to him and say, do this because I'm yours and you owe it to me, if that's what Mary was saying, and I'm not sure it was. Shouldn't we, like Mary, be ready to simply say, Lord, whatever you order in this situation, I'm ready to follow it and ready to accept it. And know that whatever he does, it's going to be right in the end. I leave you with this today. You who might think God hasn't delivered my miracle, wait a minute. The salvation of Jesus Christ that I hope is possessed by the majority of persons hearing my voice right now is the greatest miracle that can ever be imagined. Do you understand that? Ephesians 2 says we were dead. Dead, dead, dead. Spiritually dead. And then it says, but you he brought alive in Jesus Christ. What's that? Is that any different than what he did for Lazarus? You were blind. You didn't even see or understand the things of God at all. Now you see them. You were deaf. You didn't hear the voice of God or understand his will in your life or or be ready to obey his word. Now you hear. Now you read the scripture. It's a new book. There's a new power at work. The life of God has been put into you. What is that? If it isn't a miracle, what is that? if it isn't the greatest thing that God could possibly do. Every Christian is a walking miracle of the grace of God. So don't tell me God doesn't work miracles. He has worked it in you if you are his in Christ. And you go on from there with his power in you. You know, there's too many things in the world today that seem when you first approach them to be sweet and appealing at the beginning Sexual pleasure, all kinds of illicit pursuits, even illegal things. At first, wow, this is sweet, this is good. After a little while, it tastes like ashes in your mouth. The wine runs out. 
But on the other hand, for a Christian, while we may have sore temptations and great illnesses and persecution and suffering throughout significant seasons of life, we have a great and living relationship with the greatest winemaker that there ever was. And a day is planned when he is holding the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Christ will be the groom, and we, his collective church, will be the bride. And I can promise you, on that day, we, in our transformed natures and minds, will be ready to tell him, Lord, I see now, you have saved the best wine for last. Our Father, help us to appreciate what you've really done in a Christian heart and mind and life. I thank you for the miracle of grace, for the way it's even typified in this passage as a transformation that we don't see happening when it's happening, but later we know that the change has taken place. Father, perhaps that miracle of grace is just beginning for someone today. But for those for whom it's happened a long time ago, I ask you, help them to stand back in wonder and praise at your great power, at your transforming work, at the miracle of your salvation. We thank you for sending us Jesus, in whom all power is evident. We praise you for him. Amen.